This is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing and debating whatever comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Eugene Can, and my co-host is Sharice Poon. The format of this podcast is a light catch-up at the start, followed by two main items of news, one chosen by myself and one chosen by Sharice. We pick our topics every week from the Make-In Briefing, which is an email we send out that's filled with current news, interesting links, and more analysis on culture. On Making It Up, we talk through the two things that we're most interested in and then try to come to some kind of conclusion, whether it's on the state of culture, media, tech, food, anything in our modern times. If you like this podcast and would like to do something to support us, the one thing that really helps is to share your favorite episode with a friend. How are things going? I was going to ask you how Paris is. Paris was good. I think I had a little bit of a unique experience. If I if I have to put it in a certain context, I just think that… I think I told you this before that there was sort of a, an underlying belief that would be this. But also recognizing it probably wouldn't be this. But just… <laughs> it sounds so complicated. But sometimes you just have to go through the motions of doing something or like let yourself experience it and then determine what is the actual outcome versus thinking you know what the outcome is. And I think for however convoluted and misworded or or I guess inarticulate that is, it's really about not letting expectations define and having an expectation before you go. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I essentially that's, that's not letting thing. your idea of what something's going to be affect the actual experience of whatever it is. And I've I've always I've always kind of believed that too. It's like the expectations of something that you experience firsthand are always gonna be different than than the story you you consume or you see through a third party, right? Like the story someone decides to tell or share online on social media is going to be different than what you personally experience and everything behind the scenes that you're able to see. Yeah. Everything you see on social media is not the real deal. I think we all know that, but sometimes you have to remind yourself because not everyone has access or the ability to go and attend something. But I guess the reason why I think I had a little bit of a different experience is that I maybe was a little bit shielded from that. What do you mean shielded from that? Shielded from the difference between… I just wasn't going to the general circus. Like maybe it was just because I never right. got invites. Um, oh, well, we I, should be clear. You, know you, were, I mean? at, like, I you were in Paris during Paris Fashion Week. Not we, we engaging never in the usual… But you were there over the same period sort of, of time. expected thing. Exactly, exactly. So I was engaging with fashion people, but not yeah. in the same environments that you would expect most people to be. Like at shows and like… that. That's something that was interesting because… And I'll, I'll probably elaborate more on these thoughts in like a written piece or something. Or I, I, I t- tell myself I will. I've never really shied away with my opinion on on fashion, what I what I think about it currently, what I thought about it before. It's generally been pretty negative. I think you would agree too, right? Like I have a pretty negative take yeah. on fashion. The thing that kind of opened my eyes was to go there, to connect with people that you respect or that you've, you know, seen from afar and then also share commonalities and perspectives. So everyone, not everyone, but I think there's there's also a contingency of people that are pushing against what's currently being produced and made and consumed and they feel as though something needs to be done right and then there's a yeah. difference between yeah. feeling something needs to change and and it's nothing that involves doing it so you know i think there's multiple stages that exist there 
What's interesting is that you get this perspective that's exclusive in a way and is not the kinds of conversations that maybe regular consumers get to have because the ideas and the conversations that you might have are things that aren't fully formulated yet. They're feelings or sort of the development of concepts, right? Those are hard to share with consumers because they're not kind of finished products. So I think when you don't have that exclusive inside access, then your likelihood of being even more depressed about the subject is greater. I think there's an expectation that industry people should be leading consumers a certain way. And I don't know if I have an exact answer for that on Instagram. And I was actually just like, you know, 24 hours ago, I was talking with somebody or I I saw something they posted and they were just uh, highlighting how Adidas put out an ultra boost, an all white ultra boost to celebrate Black History Month. And he was like, somehow, some way this made it through all the, all the checks and it's now out in the market and he was questioning it. And usually when, when Paul, Paul Ruffles put something out on Instagram, I think there's a, a very clear definitive opinion on it. One of the call outs was, Hey, maybe, maybe websites, maybe media needs to be more proactive in calling out the bullshit. And I think that I don't disagree, but you know, one thing you have to realize is especially in the tumultuous times that is media today, it's like, what are the solutions, right? Like, if these are the people that are going to pay your bills because no one else will pay your bills because, I mean, what are the options? Actually, that's not that's not what I think of in terms of why media has a harder time calling something out. It's kind of like, well, what's productive about writing essentially an opinion piece about products and why you on the outside think they're not a good idea? I just feel like we never have the full picture, at least in terms of publishing something on a media site, it doesn't mm-hmm. feel quite enough to just be publishing takes on everything that comes out. I just don't really think that that's productive. It's not that I think, oh, you have to protect this relationship with this brand, but I just, I don't even think it's in the service of a consumer really to be like, oh, you know, this is a bad product. This is not well considered. I don't know. I, I, if that's the case, it's almost pus, passing the buck to everybody or passing it along to I everybody. I don't think it's the place for a public... Oh, well, it's definitely not the place for a publication like Macon. You don't think so? Where... Isn't that what we're all about is sort of creative accountability and like... It is creative accountability, and, but not like that. Not this specific one product like Adidas drops a white ultra boost for Black History Month. And then you post, I don't know, 300 words that say, this is a bad... <laughs> idea. I don't like that sounds like something for a personal account, like a personal opinion. If I was to treat that subject, I would rather look at, you know, what is a good way to celebrate Black History Month? Is there a good way to do that? You know, so what it's are not the so products? much that you can't call it out. It's more directionally how you're going to approach it. Yeah, exactly. That that's that's a better way of putting it. Like I don't I would not do okay. like this instant. So I think that we are we agree there should be some sort of dialogue around it. Yeah, no, I definitely think there should be a dialogue, but I just don't think the it should always be like a knee-jerk reaction. Like you see a thing online and then you're like, oh, let me post a takedown of this thing online. You know, like that's just kind of negativity and not accountability, in my opinion. It doesn't mean you don't want to have dialogue, but it's like, how do we start that dialogue? We're generally in the same wavelength. I'd yeah, say. I think we're in the general wave. I mean, we both agree that it's like... 
there needs to be conversations about these things. But how do you go about doing that? And I don't think it's to just talk about positive stuff either. Like, I do think there's a temptation for the fashion industry to be like, we're doing great. Everything is fine and rosy. (laughs) And that's not good for us either. I guess my takeaway we can move on is that I think there was a restoration of faith in fashion and also a simultaneous sort of, it's nice to learn things about topics you thought you knew really well. And it's more like, it's more along the lines of people that understand fashion are actually incredibly powerful in culture, because I would say that fashion is the intersection of a lot of cultural elements. Like to, to put out mm-hmm. a piece of relevant fashion means you have to understand art, design, music, mm-hmm. um, social uh, movements, all those things, right? And you're putting it into something that hopefully aesthetically is on point, on trend, yeah, to a degree anyways. So I think that's nice to peel away a layer and, and come across something that's once again fascinating. And like I said, it, for once I felt, not for once, but for the first time in a while, I felt excited about what fashion could potentially do because of its influence. Oh. You know, like it's a vehicle for so many like things. that's new that for it, you. Yeah. So that was cool. Um, I'm. Let's shift gears a bit because I want to know a little bit more about this thing you, uh, you copped on the internet. Ah. What'd you get? So… I was shopping on Oxfam online. Oxfam is a secondhand charity shop in the UK. I think it's global, but the UK has the most of them. And I wasn't even shopping for this item that I purchased. But then I came across a micro cassette recorder for 15 quid for 15 pounds. And I was like, huh, that's not too bad. That's like 150 Hong Kong dollars. A little bit less than 20 US. I don't know why I bought it. Really? Is it? An art piece that you're going to display? Are you going to use it? No, no, no. I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it. It's a functioning recorder and I am going to use it. I'm not really likely to use it for making work because obviously it's important that if I'm doing an interview, I actually record the interview. (laughs) And um, I don't know what the quality is on this. You're going to use it as a personal audio diary? Probably not. I will probably wind up doing something with it that's related to school. I could see you being like, you know, walking through the park, Sharice Poon, 4 p.m. <laughs> park. Well, you know I what's interesting is, is that somehow the the technical skills I've gained through making in terms of recording audio and handling audio equipment, audio editing, et cetera, has translated into my own work. I'm not about to become a music maker or producer, but I have become more interested in audio as a method of telling stories and also of like collecting data. We'll see what I do with it. It will probably be somewhat quote quote unquote artsy, whatever comes out of it. But in some ways I do like that limitation of a finite cassette. It's kind of the same as film, right? Where there's a finite number of frames you can take. If you have a cassette, you can only record either 45 minutes or 60 minutes of audio. When I was in Paris, I was doing this interview and I literally ran out of space on my SD card, on my, on my Zoom H6. But did you know? I knew it was coming. So I was like trying to coax that last answer out of them. Okay. Yeah. That can still happen, but it's just less likely unless you set up those limitations for yourself. Yeah. What stories did we publish this week? 
Yeah, um, it is pretty interesting. Last week we published the first of making money moves, which has landed, I would have to say, even more successfully than I thought it was going to. Really? Not to not to say that I thought it was a bad piece. I did not. Sorry, Scott. There is no way I thought that this was a bad piece, but it's just that to me, it wasn't necessarily like new information. We've had this conversation between us a lot, right? In terms of what is the value of talking about something that actually exists out there somewhere. And mm. turns out, you know, a lot of people might not have seen it or looked for this or understood it the way that we framed it. You summed up exactly what I was thinking because there are times when things could exist out there and you're like, man, I'm I'm just basically regurgitating. But, you know, the delivery, how you present it, the examples, all those things that hopefully are relevant to your demographic or your target audience become really important. And, you know, I think since you didn't talk about it, but I will, but even the visual element of it, I think it was very much on brand. Sharice yeah. did these really amazing illustrations or, well, they're not really illustrations so much as like collages. I don't know. What's the, what's the, what's the right term? Yeah. Collages is the right term. I think it all worked out and I'm excited because this topic, the first one, should I take this job that helps frame up the decision-making process around which jobs to take. Like, I think for a lot of people, they might have a general gut reaction or feeling as, hey, is this a job to take or not to take? But sometimes when you crystallize it and put it into this type of visual form, it makes it a lot easier to understand. And the That's true. systematic approach to it is actually important because if there are things that are going to be repeatable actions, it doesn't hurt to go in and create a framework around it so that you don't have to rethink, oh, what are all the steps I need to account for to arrive at an outcome? That's really true because even while should I take this job is a question all creatives have probably asked themselves at some point. You can't really Google that. I'm only just sort of realizing that. Like you can't Google, should I take this freelance job and then necessarily come up with something that's helpful. So for our audience, maybe this comes up and you have an understanding, okay, make it is going to frame this question in a way that's relevant to me and also that I can apply to my own systems. And then we also published the second episode of Social Effects, which is our podcast with Edward Barnier, also known as Edward KB. This episode is with Holly Marie Cato, who is a London-based photographer, filmmaker, person who does everything, essentially anything that she feels like um, she wants to get a go at. And the conversation is really good. What's interesting in particular, like maybe this is a good hook is that she started shooting during the Tottenham riots in 2011. And that's kind of like mm -hmm. a really dramatic beginning. Maybe a lot of photographers don't have exactly that story. No, it was really good. I was actually present when they did that recording and I could kind of feel the energy. And it's interesting, like, you know, this is more of an aside, but Holly was like a little bit uncertain of the outcome of that conversation, but... I think people that maybe aren't always on podcasts or like always recorded, they they never feel all that confident on the outcome. With someone like Edward who can help guide the conversation, it makes a big difference in terms of how to ensure the path of the conversation is kept. That's like an awkward way of saying basically yeah. he doesn't let things kind of come off the rails. 
Well, also, you know, when we first started doing audio, I think we also had this idea, especially recording this podcast, like, oh, we need to sound good or we need to sound smart. And I do think interview subjects, especially if they're first time or second time, they have that concern, right? Because you realize, oh, when you're speaking, you're kind of thinking as you talk and you're concerned that when people listen to it, it'll come across like you don't really know what you're talking about, but in our experience, that's not the listening experience. It's way more authentic to hear someone work through what they want to say. Should we get into into it? Ooh, good timing, man. You start. So a few days ago, a new study report came out A group of 37 scientists from around the world were brought together as part of the Eat Lancet Commission. These scientists came up with a new diet in hopes of finding a way to feed 10 billion people, which is allegedly the population the earth will hit by 2050. I think it's around seven, seven something billion right now. You have to find a way to feed an extra three billion-ish people the next 20 years or so. To that point, the outcome of this diet beyond health benefits is minimizing greenhouse gas emissions, preventing any species. I feel like diet is slightly misleading. Um, what, well, I don't know. I think you're thinking diet in, in, in terms of losing weight, but diet is like, what is your diet? I think that's still relevant, no? I think that uh, required clarifying. Back to the four points. The outcome of this diet is intended to minimize greenhouse gas emissions, prevent any species from going extinct, um, ensure that we no longer have to expand on farmland and preserve water. So these people inherently come, so the 37 scientists came from the world of farming, climate change, and nutrition, and they spent two years to come up with this study, which was published in Lancet. I wasn't exactly familiar with what the Lancet entailed, but it's a weekly peer-reviewed general medical journal among the world's oldest, most prestigious, and best-known general medical journals. Actually, its first issue dates back to 1823, so it's been around for a minute. Back to sort of the, the topic at hand, this diet itself doesn't necessarily cut out meat and dairy. And as a flexitarian diet, air quotes, it shifts some of the macronutrient needs to more environmentally friendly sources, such as nuts and legumes, such as beans and lentils. So a sample diet could look like the following, 50 grams of nuts a day, uh, 75 grams of beans, chickpeas, lentils, and other legumes, 28 grams of fish, 13 grams of eggs. So that works out to roughly about one egg a week. So I don't think you'd go (laughs) and like actually break it out, break one egg out into like seven pieces, seven pieces. But yeah, it also allows for 14 grams of red meat and 29 grams of chicken a day. Uh, Carbs include 230 grams of rice or bread and 50 grams of starchy vegetables. I'm almost done here. 250 grams of dairy, which is about a glass of milk. And for vegetables, 300 grams of veggies and 200 grams of fruit. Those quantities are kind of like, they're not very, they're kind of vague, right? Like no one really knows how much 28 grams of fish looks like. You saying that really didn't mean anything to me, but I'm also looking at this graphic, which is kind of helpful. There's a graphic that I shared with Sharice and I's show notes, and it's really one of those... uh, what do you call it? It's like one of those nutritional things where what you do is, you know, you use your palm of your hand and apparently the palm of your hand is 
three ounces. So three ounces of meat could be classified by the palm of your hand. And three ounces is about 85 grams. So already a serving of meat the size of your palm exceeds your weekly intake. Oh, dang. Really? No. Because 28 grams of fish is, or only 14 grams of red meat and 29 grams of chicken. Like if you add that all up, that's still, that's still less than 78 grams, which is the palm of your hand. But that's per day. So it's actually, yeah, per day, it's actually quite a small amount. Right. No, that that's pretty restrictive. So 300 grams of veggies would be four palms? It's, it's tough because like, I don't think that's the way you, you would necessarily calculate it because of the density. I think that in general, the way to look at it is actually different because like cauliflower takes up a lot of space, right? Like how would you actually yeah. measure that? Okay. So part of me feels like- But I think meat is the big one. Oh, okay. Okay. When you read this, did you feel like, hey, this makes sense and this is a good idea that we should start adopting? Yes, I did. I think that there has to be some sort of shift. Before we get into that, I think what's also important is to recognize what are the inherent challenges behind the adoption of this diet. And obviously, culture is a big one. You know, cultures have to shift their consumption habits. The Western world, it needs to potentially reduce how much meat it consumes, how much dairy it consumes. In Asia and Africa, that could mean less fish in Asia, less starchy vegetables in Africa. Beyond this, what is also maybe a misguided approach to getting the world to change is that it falls on the individual versus on a larger collective. So how would you make it part of a larger collective? To put things in perspective, I'm not sure if you saw the stat, but 100 companies contribute to like something like 71% of all global emissions. Yeah. Yeah. Like you heard that stat, right? So that's part of it. Yeah, so basically yeah. you're 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 trying you and I on an individual level are not the biggest contributors to a lot of things that are going around. That right. to a lot of things that are right. going like on. Right. Like it's a drop right? in the bucket. What becomes easier is it to potentially effectuate change through larger corporations or is it through essentially 7 billion people mm. currently? Like what but that that's one way of looking at it, but if you start breaking down even further, it's like, I was thinking about this. And the reason why I found it interesting was if you were to kind of create a full-on marketing campaign to help push this agenda, what are things that you need to consider? And the things I came up with, they're simultaneously a challenge as well as an opportunity is first, you have to increase education. And that could be around, and that could be around animal rights or labor practices shift cultural perspectives. So obviously, as you know, in like Asian culture, Chinese culture, there's certain delicacies. The delicacies that Asian countries are big into are perhaps, mm, I'm trying to think, are they any worse off? No, I think it's like, regardless, every culture has a delicacy, right? I don't, yeah, I don't think they're any worse off. And actually what I think the cultural perspective that needs to be changed is related to overeating. And I know Chinese culture is like this. I don't know about other cultures, but they link providing a lot of food to showing generosity and showing wealth. So how do you combat that? Because part of the reason 
we have so much food waste is actually not because we want to eat a lot of food, like actually consume it, but because we want to show off that we have food, like we can afford food. And then also we want to show people that we're generous enough to provide too much food. So that needs to change. I think it can change, but it also will need to happen with current and younger generations. Like I think there's almost a sense that once you reach a certain age, like you're you're never going to change your ways or it becomes more difficult. And I think a good example of that is something like, (laughs) well, if you think about it, like use something that's a little bit closer to home. Like I think shark fin, the consumption of shark fin was a big, big issue in this part of the world. And obviously Hong Kong has taken steps to eradicate it. And, you know, but I would say that some people, like I don't think my grandma really cares about it, to be honest. Like I, I definitely care about it, right? I don't have any interest in like ordering it. Yeah, it's interesting because the so shark fin related issue did have a big marketing campaign around it. Like a large, you know, billboards, uh, train ads, TV commercials, all of these things to support, you know, not consuming shark fin. And I do know that my grandparents are aware of those ad campaigns, but they also do not really care. Makes me think about like, oh, maybe the marketing director was targeting like our generation. Other things that that come up that need to be addressed are beyond shifting cultural perspectives, access to healthier food. Because that's a big reason why people usually defer to lower quality food and or junk food. Uh, and I think another big one too is adequate distribution and communication channels. So that's like getting the right people on board to send the right message. So that could be celebrities and governments. Yeah. Um, I think the pro-vegan movement is something that you saw a lot of traction with celebrities. So they were really helpful in sort of guiding that. Um, Well, actually in my experience, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Uh, In my experience here in the UK, there's not any kind of judgment towards people who are vegetarian or vegan. Like it's very unremarkable. So much so that people will not ask like if if I never see you eating meat or someone ever is never seen eating meat people aren't like oh my gosh why are you not eating meat you just it's fine well it's interesting because you know you you kind of question the use of the word diet right and I think the term diet is actually something that's interesting because you're looking at a lot of different I guess vantage points that are coming up and To sort of elaborate on that, it's like, well, first, the flexitarian diet is really about providing sustainability for the global population. Then you have individualized diets based on people's own restrictions and needs, right? So have you heard of like the all beef diet that's started to pick up a lot of steam as of late where you just eat beef? No, I haven't. Really? That's crazy bad for you and the planet. Well, it's crazy bad for the planet. I don't know if it's crazy bad for you to the extent where people are complaining about the consumption of red meat. Just thinking about it makes my heart burn. Oh my goodness. But regardless, I don't want to get into the science of it and the the controversies around whether red meat's good or bad for you. Uh, So much as like you look at that because some people, for example, uh, haven't been able to tolerate anything else. And this was made famous by... I think made famous is maybe like you have to preface that, but basically Jordan Peterson, which oh is the, my the controversial figure. Anyways, he was on Joe Rogan and he was talking about how him and his daughter were feeling like 
shit pretty much all the time and they switch to an all beef diet. But beyond that, there's huh. other examples of people that have also been on it. So you look at all these things and like, I think that now you have to start bringing into question the different requirements of individuals versus the sort of global community and who gets to pick what's more important, right? Yeah. I don't think the word diet is used commonly to refer to holistically everything you eat. That's why I was like, oh, I don't know if we should call it a diet because it makes it sound trendy the way this all beef diet is or the way Atkins used to be or some other famous diets. And if it's meant to be kind of the new way of eating, then calling it a diet seems like this is bound to pass out of fashion. I don't know. I'm trying to, like for me personally, I've definitely made big strides in changing my consumption habits. Like sometimes, and this is sort of like, so it's kind of like a plus and a minus in the sense that we actually order in pretty often. Like there's not a ton of food options around the office. So you like, you'll order in takeout or whatever. Obviously that in itself has a, has a footprint, but then you're offsetting it with maybe some sort of engineered fake meat, like impossible. I found myself warming up to it because from a taste perspective, it's, 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 it's not an issue. Like it, it's non-discernible in the sense that like, oh, I know I'm not eating real ground beef, right? It's, it's actually masked in a way. So I think that if we can continue to like drive a narrative and maintain taste, which would you agree taste is actually the critical reason why people enjoy food versus the actual underlying source component of it. Because if that's the case, then like really it's just like, how do you ensure things taste good? Hmm. I mean, I think it's partially taste. And I do think that generally you try to eat what's healthy for you, but there is not always consensus on what is healthy. Because even people in our generation might think, oh, you have to eat a certain amount of meat for you to be healthy. And I don't, I don't have the science on this exactly. Like what is the perfect amount of meat for each individual? But I think it's a combination of taste and, oh, actually I do have to eat X, Y, Z to feel good, to feel like I have energy. Yeah. Usually it's based around mass per body weight. So like how many grams of protein per body weight? That's usually how they calculate it. Well, like since I've come to London, I've actually eaten less carbs because I don't really like eating rice, to be honest. So now that I'm here, I get this choice where I don't have to eat rice because I'm not home and I'm not eating with a lot of other people who eat rice. Um, But then one of my friends was like, oh, if I don't eat carbs, I don't feel full. And I challenge that. I feel like it's just what you've become used to. And if you wanted to, you could shift the carbs to vegetables or fruit or something. It's partially habit as well. It would be interesting to see who can push this forward though. Cause I ultimately don't think it's eat Lancet, you know, like they've put this scientific study out, but as you've been saying for it to make actual difference would require some kind of body interested in marketing it or getting celebrities and influencers behind it, things like that. I think that part's critical to be honest. Like I think it's really about distribution. So that's why I was like, well, distribution could be through celebrities. Obviously they have their own distribution channels, but getting collective buy-in. And 
for better or worse, I've I've just been thinking about um, the whole fire festival thing because all those documentaries <laughs> have recently released and yeah. how strong the celebrity contingency was and how that impacted their ability to, to sell tickets and whatnot. Should we say um, really quickly so yeah. what fire festival was for anyone who doesn't know? Yeah, fire festival was this utter failure of a luxury music festival in the Bahamas. And it was put on by, I forget his last name, this guy named Billy. Billy <laughs> McFarland Billy. and Ja Rule. Yeah. yeah, and a few other people. Yeah, yeah but Hulu and Netflix dropped doc- documentaries back to back. So I guess to that point, it's like, yeah, you know, in this day and age, the one thing that I do have a concern about is that in this day and age, when everything is so noisy, it becomes increasingly difficult to gain critical mass around certain things. So even the most controversial things still get drowned out by something else. So I'm not sure how you're going to be able to get collective buy-in from, like I said, 7 billion people, right? Obviously, you're not going to get every single person, but let's say hypothetically you were to do that. I think that it might have been easier back in the day when it's sort of hard to get everything pushed through. No, I would say that I'm tentatively optimistic, but also it's because I know that food habits change over time naturally based off of situations. So for example, like when there were world wars that resulted in very real changes to the way people ate. So whether it's this flexitarian diet or not, eventually as heat is applied to our society, there will have to be changes in the way we eat. And it's not going to be sudden. Like people are not just going to suddenly 7 billion of us convert at the same time, but gradually our eating habits will be different 20 years from now. My subject today is really serious. (laughs) Yeah, it's this is one of the more serious topics I think we've talked about on this podcast. It's from GQ. It was published a week ago. The author is Chris Heath and the title is Creating While Clean. And it's a really long article, which is funny because last week's the millennial burnout one was already long. This one is even longer. (laughs) Essentially, it goes through series of questions and answers from nine musicians slash singer songwriters who are now clean, you know, at different stages of sobriety. So the people interviewed include a range of people, Trey Anastasio from Fish, Zachary Cole Smith of Div, Soko, Jason Isbell, Julian Baker, Ben Harper, who are all singer songwriters. And then probably the most famous is Steven Tyler from Aerosmith and Joe Walsh of the Eagles. The format is that they they must have done all the interviews separately. I, I, the understanding is that the interviews were done separately with these nine people, but they've collated them together under the same questions. So it kind of goes through a chronological trajectory and looking at mm-hmm. what were they like before sobriety as a kid through what was it like to you know be taking a lot of drugs or drinking or whatever substance it was that they were addicted to. 
And then, you know, the point of their change and of realization beyond that, focusing on what was scary about switching to sobriety, what is it like to be sober now? And how is sobriety related to your creativity? So I think I'm going to, instead of summing up everyone's answers, which I think would sound really trite, I'm going to read a couple of quotes under different categories. So looking at before sobriety as a kid, Baker said, I feel like many people struggled with the abuse of substances when they were adults. And I think that lends a gravity to them that is easily dismissed or obscured when you use substances as a child. That sort of falls into the paradigm of a debaucherous adolescent, servant, irresponsible teenager. It's just portrayed as irresponsibility or recklessness. And it only starts to be labeled as a life altering problem when you get into adulthood. That cultural categorization of substance abuse as the taboo, but expected misbehavior of children contributed to me having a warped sort of denial about the substances I was using and approaching them cavalierly. In terms of, were you having fun? Walsh says, everything points to that. At the time, it was great fun. And a lot of the answers were similar to this one. At the point of change and of realization, I was quite fascinated by this section. They talked about, you know, what was scary about the idea of being sober? Harper says, well, the emotional edge that it does take off is real. So living with that, with life in its most raw form is a bit daunting. Just taking life full on without that influence was one. And Baker kind of says the same thing. The other fear is that when substances aren't there and I'm alone, I'm going to have to confront something even scarier, which is myself and my own consciousness. Now I have to sit there and be with myself. And that is most terrifying of all. However, as hard as it is, it's an extremely necessary skill, the ability to be alone and to confront yourself. You can't hide behind substances all the time. I have a question. I, I mean, you and I obviously aren't super hardcore into substances. How does that change how we can have an insight into this topic? For me, it was interesting because I can't say that I have similar experiences at all. They go on to talk about what it's like to have an addictive personality and how when you're living sober, you have to realize that you still are the same person who became addicted to a substance. And you have to recognize that you're still dealing with that same personality that hasn't changed. And while I was reading this article, I was thinking, well, I don't think that's me as in something genetically or through nurture, whatever it is, I... I'm not likely to become addicted to something or at yeah. least not to an extreme level. So what do I get out of this? I was going to say the one thing that we've heard before is that some people fall into the, the pretense of creating memorable, amazing work and they believe those conditions need to be replicated, right? Yeah, so. exactly. So because I was thinking about this article in the frame of making it up and then make an audience, I was thinking about how is this related to being creative? And also how is this related to being creative if you are someone who is not in a dangerous addiction to a substance? And what I kind of came up with is I think we are all kind of trying to find a routine or a set of mind or some kind of perfect environment that leads to the best work being made, 
whether for us, you know, it's probably not drink for you and me individually, it's not drinking or getting high and et cetera. But I think you and I, we still think about, okay, I have to have nine hours of sleep and be working out and not be ill. And then I'm going to make good work. And I think what this article talks about in relation to situations when you can and cannot create is that what you think is good for you might not be. And you can, I guess the relation between this and the diet is that you can adjust to another way of living and that other way of living could be better for you in terms of what you can create. This is just like a total aside, but perhaps the underlying substance abuse that allows you to create something at any given moment in time might also be a byproduct of other conditions. You know what I mean? Like maybe, and this is not to say you need to be in the worst depths of despair to create the best work, but maybe those two kind of go hand in hand. And it just so happens the ability to create might mask itself as being on drugs or being under the influence. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Walsh says there was this little voice in his head saying, well, you know what works, just get a little buzz. And he also says that he thinks Hendrix and Hemingway couldn't have produced the work that they did if they weren't on drugs and drinking. So he still believes in that argument that substances Mm -hmm. will help him, but he's just recognized that it's not an option for him anymore. So he has to readjust. Is the ultimate goal really about balance though? The reason why is like this almost came at the right time. I had, I didn't look fully into it, but it was, it was a piece in wallpaper with Tom Dixon talking about um, the virtues of LSD. Right. Mm. So those are things that I think are interesting and fascinating. Like for me, like I said, I'm, I'm not going and partying hard every single weekend, but I also feel that there are certain limitations that for better or worse, like let's just, utilize what is out there in terms of people's insights. And maybe there is value in like microdosing or doing this or that on an occasional basis and not in a sort of abusive manner. So I'm not saying that you need it, but I also don't think it's as bad as, well, assuming you don't become addicted to it. But yeah, there is the opportunity to use it as a tool. Right, right. Well, Something that everyone, I mean, I don't want to come across in this podcast as saying, oh, we suggest you do this and you're going to become more creative, right? Like that's really dangerous to ever say, especially when talking about substances. Like it's okay to, it's okay to be be prescriptive in more abstract ways. Like, should I take this job, right? Like making money moves. That's also us giving advice on how you can optimize your system and be more efficient. But it becomes a very different thing to be like, oh, you should try microdosing to become more creative. And something that everyone in these answers said was like, okay, what works for me isn't what works for other people. And I would never say you should be sober. Like I'm not going around being like, everyone should be sober all the time. I've never really created something under the influence. Like even just being hammered or anything. Well, hammered is probably the the extent of it of, probably on the on the, on the uh, further side of the spectrum but just like having a glass of wine like I don't know you don't you don't go and have a drink and then start writing do you um actually sometimes I do drink and work but I don't think it helps <laughs> it's actually probably 
less helpful. That's kind of funny, actually. And I'm not saying I drink a lot. Actually, it's funny because I literally have an empty glass, empty wine glass next to me right now. I, I did not have Jesus. it this morning. Learning something new about Charisse in Europe starts drinking yeah. casually. Man, I've, I've been drinking so much more in Europe than I used to in Hong Kong. But not I mean, a dangerously. No, just not yeah. not dangerously, I promise. Um, but what I was going to say is actually when I was reading this, I was like, actually, it would be nice to just be totally clean for extended period of time. Because have you ever worked through a hangover? Yeah, but nothing super heavy, like not a heavy lift. It's not pleasant though. Oh yeah, it's not, it's not pleasant. And but, the thing is, I was going to say, you mentioned earlier, what if possibly an individual does find I make better work when I'm high or I make better work when I'm drunk. A lot of these people, when they answer the question, what do you think would have happened if you carried on as you were said, I would be dead. So it's kind of like, okay, maybe I could make amazing, you know, out of this world work for 10 years, but then I'm probably going to die from my, you know, substance abuse. So is that a fair trade-off? I don't think so. Like I personally don't think so. Well, I guess it depends like people's goals and aspirations. Maybe someone wants to go out on top, which so many of these people have in recent times. What is the the age of 27 is like kind of the magical age where a lot of these, is it 27? You know I think it's 27. About? Yeah, I know what you mean. Most stats suggest that substance usage is going down for a lot of people, if I recall correctly. So it's, and that might be, com- and that might be combined with better mental health support, um, better support systems in general. So maybe these things are very generationally specific. Well, I mean, there's someone interviewed who's 19. Oh, wait, who decided to become sober at 19 because, mm-hmm. well, for her, it wasn't drugs, but it was drinking. That was a problem. Yeah. And I don't think, I think the culture around alcohol is changing less, is changing more slowly than it is around drugs. Ultimately, I think the takeaway for me or what I would sum up feeling about this article, which I think is a compelling read, is you have to recognize what's dangerous for you personally. And that's the hardest part, right? It's very similar to what we talked about last week about understanding how you're feeling emotionally. I think being honest with yourself about something that is dangerous is a constant negotiation. And I think the similarity to your article is that sometimes you have to make choices that are countercultural or might seem as though society is not on board with it yet. I think I'm going to read one more quote by Steven Tyler from this article to sort of cap things off. In his response to what do you think would have happened if you carried on as you were, he said, The experiences I had and that learning process was something I cherish forever. It's like looking for Alice and chasing the rabbit down the hole. Your thinking is around everything that you witness in Wonderland. It's not a bad thing. If you can write about it and make sense about it with music, then you're golden. But that got taken away from me. I'd get so high that I couldn't be creative anymore. But these moments, I don't regret them. It was the greatest time. I'm just happy I survived, crawled out of the hole. And I think it's a good quote also just 
on topic with what we've been talking about because he says, okay, looking back, I don't have to condemn what I did and say, oh, I feel so guilty or it was all terrible. Like he recognizes actually it was amazing and I made great work, but also at the same time, it was unsustainable. Is there anything you learned after reading this? I think I kind of am, at least in this moment, while it's fresh in my head, thinking about the people around me slightly differently. Not to say that I've suddenly become judgmental of specific people in my life, but thinking about, oh, maybe I do have people I know who are working through things like this themselves. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm not, and I don't think I'm in danger, I can still at the same time be more aware of the fact that there are underlying struggles for people possibly around me that I'm close to that I, I wasn't recognizing or discussing. Yeah. What about you? Anything from your end? I don't know. I think whenever you do these types of stories where it's asking a bunch of people, probably more about creating uh, several smaller insights, but also the goal is really to provide sort of an all-encompassing support story in a way where like, hey, you know what? These are people that have been through the ringer, but are also super famous or generally speaking, they've had some sort of success as as creatives, right? And it's, hey, this is mm-hmm. this is the challenges they go through. And if you are going through it, then just just have some sort of comfort in the fact that Steven Tyler from Aerosmith has seen it this way. And this is how he's taken control of the situation. I think that's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in learning more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, and Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is a very tired, tired... Making it up!